Well, good morning. Open your Bibles up, if you would, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. Excited that you uh, are here this morning. want to continue looking with you at uh, this first verse in uh, the book of Revelation. And it's just, it's loaded. It's loaded with, uh, uh, just loaded with truth. I don't know how it is for you, but uh, again, uh, when I was in high school, there was a guy down the road, and uh, he is no longer living. He uh, got cancer. Okay. He was a Christian. And uh, I remember uh, back in high school, I went through a time, it was in the 80s, when everyone, I don't know if you remember this, everyone thought the world was going to end. We went through this, and everyone talked about it. I don't know if you remember that, about that. Everyone thought the world was going to end. And uh, I didn't know what I thought about it, but Roger... His name was Roger. Well, I would go down to his house, and he had in his den, it was the coolest place, he had in his den all these maps, and uh, he had the United States here, and, and there was all kinds of markings and circles and scriptures, and then he had a map over here of the, of the Middle East, and he was, man, he was into this. And then he had Daniel, had two Bibles, Daniel and Revelation, and he was marking it out, and who was going to be the Antichrist, and where they, and every time I came home from there, I was scared to death. You know? <laughs> I was scared to death, you know. I prayed all the way home, you know, type of thing. Jesus, you know, wow, you know, you know, that kind of thing. And um, the whole deal was, is that Revelation was, you know, it was the end times book that was dedicated for the scholars, for the, it was dedicated for those who have these special insights and abilities in order to discern the end times and when Christ is going to come back. And, and man, Roger was a, was a really great guy. He did. He loved Jesus. Uh, and Roger was not kind of, um, you know, abnormal. He was typical. From, from my, my, my world and how I grew up and how the book of Revelation was always talked about, it was typical. I mean, you just don't deal with the book of Revelation. It's an end times, really, you know, you have to kind of, after you go to maybe get a PhD, then you can deal with it. And it was, you know, it doesn't help when you turn on the television and now we've got this show, Revelation, you know. And, uh, but see, John didn't think that. And I can say that, you know, emphatically, I can say that for sure, because you get his perspective on the book in the first three verses, okay? And we've been looking at that. The book of Revelation is a prophecy. I mean, you have that, even, even he calls that, uh, uh, the, this book a prophecy in verse three. He said, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. It is a prophecy. By the time you come down to 21, chapter 21, you have Jesus referring to it, you have the angel referring to it, you know, hey, take to heart the words of this prophecy. Okay? Whoever adds anything to this prophecy. That, I mean, that's all throughout the book. Okay? I mean, it's strong. It begins and ends with it. This thing is a prophecy. But as John takes that prophecy and sets it over here and then, and then chooses to help us understand that prophecy, uh, we begin to realize that it's not a prophecy about times and dates. It's not a prophecy that is, that is different from the message as we have in the rest of Scripture. Let me say that again. This book, this prophecy is not different than other prophecies that we have in terms of content. I, folks, I really believe that. 
I really believe because it's from, it, it, I mean, that comes out of his language in these first three verses. This first three verses are the words that are, that are given before the prophecy. And they are meant to set boundaries on how we are to receive this prophecy. The first opening statement uh, begins with the word revelation, which is where we get the title. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the word revelation is probably best understood, I believe best understood, most scholars will uh, agree with this, that the word revelation is, is best understood as an unveiling. It is an unveiling of Jesus Christ. And every time you confront or every time you come in contact with or you see Jesus in this revelation, he is unpacked. He's not just, see John, I, I can't find a place where he says, oh, there's Jesus. He doesn't say that. I mean, even in the great throne room, which I didn't bring up yet. But even in the great throne room, when Jesus goes up to get the, the scroll out of the, right hand of, uh, out, of, uh, out of the right hand of God, he's not just Jesus. See, John looks at him and he doesn't say, oh, and Jesus walked up and took the scroll. He says, I looked and I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. <laughs> he's unveiled. Okay, You get to see the contents of who Jesus is. Now, as we looked at last night, which I was overly excited about, the content of Jesus is that which God gave him. That's his language, which was really, really, really um, uh, strong or repetitive, stated a lot back in John's other writings. Every time you come into, con uh, as you begin to come into John's writings, uh, each time you begin to study those, you get this picture of Jesus and the core identity of Jesus is the person. It's his father. It's what's going on inside of him. It's the literal presence of his father. Now, I talk about identity. I refer to that as Jesus' identity because Jesus' identity was not found in even him being king. It wasn't his identity. And that was difficult. I guess I never thought of it like that. When I think of Jesus, his identity, I think of King Jesus. Well, yeah, he was king, but that wasn't his identity. He was a miracle worker, but that wasn't his identity. He was, you know, he was the lamb, but that wasn't his identity. Okay, he was the, you know, these. See, his identity comes back to the person dwelling within him. He was a son of God. His identity comes back to the Father. And see, you know, if you were unveiled, and you are being unveiled, Amen. if you were unveiled, what's your identity? Uh, I take that, I can't tell you how, how far I take that with my son and being a dad. I, you know how many PKs I know who don't love Jesus? I, I don't want my son to think my identity is evangelism, a tenant evangelism. <laughs> my identity is in him. And I'm into him way before I'm an attendant evangelist. Okay? My identity is not in uh, the Church of the Nazarene, although I am an ordained elder and I'm legal, okay, in the Church of the Nazarene. <laughs> but that's not my identity. My identity is in him. Okay? My, I mean, my identity is in him even before it's somehow I'm married. And that's... I mean, that's the most integral part of my life here is my wife. We are one flesh, but my identity is him. Okay? So if you're unveiled, what's your identity? Is it, you know, good works? Is it a youth pastor? You know, is it a good person? You know, what's your identity? The identity of Christ himself was the Father, which was not just an earthly thing. It was uh, an eternal thing. Okay? It was an eternity. When you come into the eternities, you see Jesus is still, his identity is the Father. It is his identity, his source, his life. Okay? As Jesus is our life, the Father is his life, which is, you know, it's, it's incredible. 
The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him. I want to talk to you about the next statement that he gives us here. And um, again, it seems like he's kind of building something. And it's moving through the whole first verse. But when he says the unveiling of Jesus Christ, and then he gives content to that, which God gave him, he moves to the purpose statement that he hasn't given so far. Okay? The book of Revelation is an unveiling of Jesus Christ, and he wants you to know that everything that's unveiled in Jesus Christ is which God gave him. But then he adds this purpose statement, and the purpose statement is, as it reads in the NIV, to show his servants what must soon take place. Better translation of this verse and the next verse is probably going to come from the New King James Version. Personal opinion, it seems to fall in line with uh, a better translation in terms of what the Greek is trying to get across. Okay? So we're, gonna, we're going to uh, help us with the words here. But this is a purpose statement. Okay? The unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, is to show his servants what must soon take place. Okay? The first of the purposes is that this is a, uh, and it's, it's right there in front of us, this is a demonstrative purpose. Okay? In other words, the purpose, I mean, he gives a purpose for it. Why is Jesus Christ unveiled so that we can see that everything going on inside of him is that which God gave him? The purpose is to show his servants what must soon take place. It's to show. And really, the purpose, the purpose and to must soon take place gives content to pur- purpose. And I need to tell you, So it sounds like when you read to show his servants what must soon take place, that sounds like future. That sounds like, you know, the reason that Jesus is unveiled and what you see when it's unveiled is that which God gave him is to show his servants what must soon take place. And you begin to think you go throughout the book of Revelation and the purpose of this is to show you something out there. The what must soon take place is misleading. Really, it's it's misleading because it's not something out there. It's something in the present. Which I had no, I, I missed that from the English translation. To show his servants what must soon take place, it's not like, whoa, something's going to take place, I wonder when it's going to be. That's not what he's saying. It's not what he's saying. Okay? So we're going to walk through this in chunks. The first chunk that I want to walk you through is the to show. It's that statement. The purpose is to show, which is a demonstrative purpose. That the reason Jesus is unveiled, that everything going on inside of him is to show his disciples. It's a demonstration. What's going on inside of Jesus, as Jesus is unveiled, and what you see inside of Jesus is that which is from the Father, the purpose of that is to show what you and I are to be. Because as Jesus is unveiled and you see the Father, when you are unveiled, you're to see Jesus. Okay? Kind of old truth. Let me walk you through just a couple of this, a couple of these uh, statements. Go back with me, if you would, please, to John chapter 5. Don't really want to spend too much time here. But I want to show you, um, back in John, uh, in the book of John, again, this is his language. The prologue is not necessarily a part of the prophecy uh, proper, if that makes sense. Okay, it's not necessarily the prophecy proper, it's his words before the prophecy. So these words that he's using, he's used before. It's his, see, John hasn't changed. And that's so, that's so incredible. See, he doesn't get this prophecy in Revelation, and you see that his whole deal changes. His whole deal changes, and he thinks something brand new. That's not the case. Okay, it's not the case. It's the same language. It's the same thing. If anything, this is left from a time... It's taken to a time level. We talk about levels sometimes. It's, it's taken from a time level to an eternity level, but it's the same message, which is phenomenal. It's the same message. What we're hearing about here is what you're going to hear about there. That's what this book says. What you're going to hear about here is what you're going to hear about there. 
Okay? Same stuff. You go back into John and you again, you see this language. Chapter 5 is full of it. Chapter 5 is full of it. Um, and we looked at this and you've, you've heard this before, so um, easy to go through. Chapter 5 is the, is the setting where Jesus comes into the temple and he, he heals on the Sabbath and he commands someone to pick up his mat and walk on the Sabbath. The Jews find out that it's him and they begin to persecute him. The idea of persecution is not casual. It's they're going to try to take his life. I mean, they were going to try to take it before. And they have really been watching Jesus ever since chapter 2 and the aggression that he, is, that he has shown there. And you begin to see that spill out in chapter 3. Nicodemus comes and talks to him and they're beginning to spy on him. And so Jesus heads out to Galilee and that's how, how he ends up going through Samaria. By the time chapter 5 comes around, you have another feast of the Jews. Jesus comes back down to celebrate this feast and they still have their eye on him. Okay? Still have their eye on him. So he acts up again from their perspective and they begin to persecute him in verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. So Jesus gives his first response to that persecution. Again, it's his identity. It's his identity. Okay? He comes back to his identity, the very source of who he is, how he is identified. When you come down to the very existence of who Jesus is, okay? it's the Father. What's going on inside of him. Okay? What's causing him to do what he does. That's what he says. Verse 17, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work. Okay, My father is still at work, which is going on inside of Jesus. And so he concludes to this very day, and I too am working. Okay, You want to know why I healed that man on the Sabbath? It's my father. He's working. He's working still. And of course, they don't like that language. And so they begin, verse 18, they begin, for, the, for this reason the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. See, they're going to kill him before, but now they're really going to kill him. Tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but now he's even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. In other words, he's, he, Jesus is identifying himself with God's work. He's taking his works and putting them on the plane of the Father. Wouldn't that be something if that could be my ministry? I'm not talking about you. Wouldn't that be something if that could be my ministry? This summer, as I, as I stand before 1,500 Teenagers, let me go a little bit more personal. I've always been nervous about being a dad. And I caught myself saying, rather recently, a few months ago, Jesus just raising. And he said, that's what I plan to do all along. That my raising is no different than his raising. That I don't need Jesus to come down separate from me and come in my fifth wheel and watch him. He does, that's the plan. <laughs> that's the plan. That me raising my son should be no different than Jesus raising my son. He should be raising my son, just using me. You understand that's the message? That is the message. I mean, there's, there's nothing else besides that. Jesus so identifies him with his works. He so identifies him with the Father's works that they are one and the same. And you understand, they picked up on that. They understood exactly. They understood exactly what Jesus said. He makes himself equal with God. He was breaking the Sabbath before, you know, barging in and and breaking their traditions, which as uh, Dr. Manley said last night, their oral traditions, their oral oral, um, law became uh, more important to them than the law, okay? (laughs) So, uh, um, okay, he broke those. He broke those because those things, and it's, it's, it's old news in Matthew especially. I mean, it's all through it. But see, those became more important than these. And Jesus comes and breaks these because they were more concerned about these than they were those. And he comes and smashes these and says, these are not the big deal, that's the big deal. 
okay? Comes and smashes those, okay? Summary. So he first he breaks the Sabbath, but now he's making God equal to him by his works, claiming that what I do, the Father does, okay? What the Father's doing, I do. And of course, uh, uh, Jesus gives them this answer in response to their persecution, and he says, and, and the whole from verse 19, we won't read through it, but the whole of verse 19 all the way down through really the end of the chapter is, hey, it's my Father. Whatever I do is what the Father does. I can do nothing outside of my Father, Okay? Everything in my life is dictated and explained by my Father. It's my Father working. It's His works that you're seeing. And again, this is typical John language. Everything that's unveiled in Jesus is that which God gave Him. It's chapter 5, all over the chapter. Now, this is a demonstration. Of course, Jesus was sent as a demonstration of the Father, but He was sent as the demonstration of the life you and I are to live. See, that is salvation. This is eternal life. This is eternal life. What's going on inside of Jesus, the hand of the Father, the presence of the Father, the person of the Father, what's going on inside of Jesus is to go on inside of us. Okay? The same spirit that's working inside of Jesus is the same spirit that's to work inside of us. Okay? He says that in chapter 5, uh, who is working in him, and chapter 6 is the demonstration of that. Chapter 6 is a feeding of the 5,000 scene. We've worked through some of this already uh, in our studies. But chapter 6 is the feeding of the 5,000 scene. And it's, it's talked about in all four Gospels. John's is a little bit different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Of course, it should be because it's the official book of the Crosstalk Conference. But it's, it's unique among all four Gospels. Because this feeding of the 5,000 scene, is, is the whole thing, you get the idea, is just designed to be a testing. It's, it's a pop quiz. Jesus sits there on the side of this mountain. He gives him, gives him description of that. It's, it's the Passover feast is near and uh, he's sitting on the side of the mountain and he looks up, verse 5, sees this great crowd coming towards him. And he's probably thinking to himself, and you get this from the idea of the passage, from what's coming in the passage. He's sitting there on the side of the mountain and he's thinking to himself, I wonder if they learned what they, I wonder if they learned what I want them to learn back in chapter 5, which there's been a six month time period from chapter 5 to chapter 6. Okay? Which means you know what Jesus has been talking, what he's been talking about between chapter 5 and chapter 6. Everything that he talked about in chapter 5, chapter 4, chapter 3, chapter 2, chapter 1. I mean, this is what he's been talking about. So for, for six months, we really don't have a record where he's been, but you can be sure that he's been out there talking, 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 teaching, setting down, pressing. It's what he always talks about. So chapter 6 is setting on the side of this mountain. Have they embraced it? Have they learned? See, are they getting in on? Are they getting in on what I've been demonstrating to them? Verse 5, sees a great crowd. Verse 6, he said to Philip, get this, he said, and it's not verse 6, it's the end of verse 5. He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now verse 6 says, he asked this only to test him. For he already had in mind what he was going to do. So he, this is a testing, it's a pop quiz. Okay? It's a pop quiz, it's a test time. He already knows what he's going to do. What's he going to do? Rely on the Father. <laughs> what else is there to do? It's the Father's issue. It's the Father's circumstance. But he looks to Philip and he says, where are we going to get bread? This is a testing time. And they were called, and we may get a chance to look at this this weekend, doubtful. But see, they were to look at Jesus and say, oh, Father, take care of it. He'll provide. We, I don't really know where uh, some of the time events of... There are things that took place in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that don't pl take place here. I kind of wonder if in the Gospels, if the time when the disciples went and got the, got the coin out of the fish's mouth, the tax out of the fish's mouth, I wonder if that's already taken place here. 
I haven't looked at the time. I haven't measured that out time-wise. But let's say it's had. Let's say it had. I mean, you'd think that they would have learned by now. I mean, they need the temple tax. They need the tax. Jesus says, yeah, go down to the lake, go fishing, catch one, open his mouth. You know, <laughs> who's going to buy that? You know? And they did. And they got it. And you just can't explain that away. You know, well, you know, I was down, we was throwing coins the other day down through here. And, you know, and that fish, it's a bottom feeder. It is, really. It's a bottom feeder. So it probably picked it up. I mean, so it wasn't necessarily, you know, it isn't like God, you know. It's kind of hard to explain that away. Okay? They are to rely upon the Father. Okay, this is the testing time. See, they should be catching, uh, they should be catching this by now. So Jesus presents a testing time. They are to be the demonstration. And of course, this is, this is reiterated in chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17, that as I, as a father is in me, I am going to be in you. It is the message. Okay? Revelation chapter 1. Jesus says, the purpose of the unveiling of myself, okay? doesn't say this. John says the purpose of the unveiling of Jesus so that you can see which God gave him is the, the purpose of that is to show you. Is to show you. Now you see this in the book of Revelation. Chapter 2 and chapter 3 in the seven churches. See, the seven churches are the body of Christ. Seven churches are the body of Christ. They are His presence here. How are they to deal with the circumstances they're up against? How are they to deal with the issues that they're presented with? How are they to deal with the daily workings and these, these issues that have, that have arisen out of, their, you know, out of the life circumstances in which they find themselves? Jesus comes and how they are to live is how, who He is. So He unveils that He is the answer to each and every issue. He is the answer. Which is a statement of Jesus says, Listen, I want to come to you and I want to be the answer for that situation. He's the answer. First purpose of of the unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, is to show his servants. It's to show them the kind of the kind of existence, the kind of life that they are to live, which is him. Okay. Now the second purpose that is tied with this, and it's still into uh, there's kind of a twofold purpose, and I don't know if you want to call it a twofold purpose. I've kind of struggled with how to word it. Because it's not two purposes. It's the purpose is to show his servants how they are to live, and then but the, to show there's something going on in the background of that which gives content to that showing. Um, I really found it interesting. And again, this is my own, when it comes down to it, carnal mind, I guess. Uh, the self-patterns that I've always said, I mean, um, I think probably at one time or another, all of us had looked at heaven and thought about what I'm going to get. My mansion. My new body, um, you know, my Dodge diesel truck in heaven, you know, the real, you know, the real, you know, I, I, what I'm going to receive. It's kind of a self view. So I guess I naturally impose that upon Jesus. I naturally impose that upon Jesus. He's king. He's king of the kingdom. What does that mean? Well, he's going to sit in the palace. He's going to have servants. I might get to wait on him, you know. I might get to come in with a little bell. He rings. I come in. He puts the bell. Hey. I get to go out and, and he walks around and he has the nicest cars and he has chauffeurs. That was, that's just kind of how I thought of kings. I mean, that's kings here. Okay. Um, found it interesting that that doesn't fit, though, with the style of life that Jesus lived, which is the style of the kingdom. Now, remember, everything we find in Revelation is not just an earthly style. It is an eternal style. 
a style of life. And if you don't like that terminology, probably wouldn't be here so we can still use it. But it's the style of life. It's, it's who he is in terms of the person. Everything going on in the life of Jesus was not for himself. It was for us. Jesus is the good shepherd who comes and lays his life down. This was, this was, um, I really began to be confronted with this radically when uh, I became married. And um, we were in counseling and I was, uh, uh, I was told that I'm to be the kind of husband that uh, Jesus is to the church. The husband that he is to the church. And I, that's easy on the head of my household. That's right. I'm the king my household. You know, I'm the king of my household. You know, when it comes down to it, they might make if because of me that you know they're gonna. Wow, I'm the head of my. I'm the king. I make the decisions, and they begin to say, "Well, I think you have really. A, I think you have kind of a misunderstanding of the kind of king that Jesus was. See, king wasn't a lording over. Jesus wasn't a walking around in charge and." That kind of a king, he was the suffering servant, as Isaiah said. See, Isaiah in the Old Testament looked into the future somehow and saw Jesus and said, wow, he's the suffering servant who's coming and meeting the needs. Amen. I thought, what kind of a king is that? So I came into Ephesians. I was given the passage, the kind of, the kind of husband I'm to be is the kind of, kind of Christ, the kind of king that he is. Okay? As I am to be to my wife and family is the way he is to the church. And Jesus is the one that pours his life out for the church. And I begin to scratch my head and think, well, I guess that makes sense. Did Jesus ever use the disciples for himself? No. But there probably were times when he needed to exert his authority and, and control them and make them do for their own good. He never even did that. I, was, I, was, I, I, was, I found it remarkable how he handled Judas. Yes. Which, he didn't handle Judas. <laughs> he didn't handle Judas. There's a statement where uh, there's a statement in the scripture where it says Judas, Judas was a thief from the beginning. He was always helping himself to the money. He was the treasurer, always helping himself. Jesus never came over at any point and said, Well, you're not doing the finances anymore. Exerting my authority. I'm the man. Gave it to Matthew. Never did that. Judas was in the Last Supper scene. Jesus comes in, the defining moment of his ministry, one of the defining moments, my, you know. He comes in with them. They maybe misunderstood this. They all take the best seats. I found it interesting. Who knows if it's true. One of the commentators that I read said Judas took the best seat around the table. Whether that's true, I don't know. But Jesus comes in, takes off his outer garment, wraps the towel around his waist, which was the place of a... Can you imagine the look on their faces? Well, we know what Peter thinks about it. And he kneels before them and he's washing their feet. See, this, this, is, this is the style of the kingdom that I don't live for me and I don't live for myself and I don't, I don't think for myself. See, how can I help you? And I begin to see my role as a husband as God places me in the family not to be the dictator, which is a worldly... See, it's a worldly attitude. That's a worldly husband. That God places me in the home that I am to be the first to die to myself. I am to be the example of one who's living on the cross. I'm the first to say I'm sorry. I'm the first to reconcile. I'm the, I'm the one setting in my family. I like the way that uh, um, the sower, the seed and the sower, Titus, uh, kind of... Uh, interwove this, the idea of the seed and, and uh, the sowers planting the seed and some of it falls on different types of soil, some of it falls on this soil, some falls on another type of soil. Um, the seed that, that grows is the seed that falls in good soil. And that's paralleled in a passage in, in Titus that I am to be the good soil by which that seed sprouts up. 
So in my family, I am to be, God has, God has ordained it for whatever reason in His purpose. God has ordained it that I be the good soil in my family by which my family sprouts up. That somehow God has placed me in my family that I'm an integral part in that as the head of my household. That I am to serve and, and what's best for my son and what's best for my wife and what's best for my future six kids and, and you know, uh, see, what, what's going to be best for my family as I pour my life out and say, how can I meet your need? See, how can I lose myself and say, Jesus, how can you just, how can you come in my life and serve them and make them, make them into the people you want them to be? Okay? This is the style of his ministry. So he never controlled Judas. He washes their feet. Judas was there for that. When Jesus breaks the bread and says, this is my body, that Judas was there for that. See, Jesus never just said, well, listen, you know, and pushed him aside. He never exerted his own authority. Judas made that choice. Judas is the one that turned and walked away. Jesus didn't have to make that choice. Jesus said, I want to meet your need, meet your need, meet your need. And there came a point where Judas says, I'm not letting you meet my needs. And Satan began to meet his needs. Okay? So Jesus demonstrated a, uh, again, the cross was not just, you know, on a hill and Jesus died on it. And that was the, see, that was the style of life that he lived. It was the style of death and never living for himself and meeting the needs. And see, that's the kind of dad that I want to be. It's the kind of husband I want to be. It's the kind of minister that I want to be. Just bend and mold and see this is the style of life. Now here, now get this. That's not just an earthly thing. It's not just an earthly style. That is a heavenly style. This really knocked my socks off. See, my, my first, and I don't know where I picked this up, but my idea was Jesus did that here and his reward, okay, since you died here, what's the song? We lay our cross down, we go to heaven and get the motorbike. Wow, that'd be great. My, my own twisted, you know I've heard in the church, there's some pretty perverted theology out there. That when we go to heaven, this, those who are not Christians will be our servants. We'll pay them back. They'll be my waiters. Heard that. They'll be my waiters. And my wife in heaven will be just the way, I, you know, wow. She'll be my object in heaven, the perfect object that I, that all that I've ever dreamed. You see how self-centered that is? My house will be just, why would, see that, this way here, heaven is, turns to be self-centered. It's not worth finding revelation that the platform of Jesus' life here, and again, if you don't like level, I don't know how to talk to you about this, but the platform of life here is the platform of life there. The fundamental of it. It's just... Whew. See, God began talking like that. See, in the Old Testament, God was the helper. Old Testament. In, in Christ, in the New Testament, that went to a whole new... Uh, intimate level of relationship. Help, helper idea. Heaven is the, is another. Which, and again, we have no record of this and it's not right for to say this, but I can't help to wonder if there's going to be a, some type of, but the, however you believe about that, what's going on here in terms of what Christ was doing here as the suffering servant pouring out his life is the same thing we see in heaven. Because you get in heaven and Jesus is not sitting on a throne eating grapes, hanging out, got all these, you know, servants around him and, and, you know, he never was able to get married in heaven so he gets the best looking ones up there, probably more than one. <laughs> Depends how twisted and perverted you are, where that'll run with you in your life. See, and that's the picture I'd see of Jesus in heaven. It's not so. Jesus comes and He appears to the seven churches. 
And when he unveils himself, everything that's unveiled is that which God gave him. And the purpose is to show them what... what uh, it's the demonstration of how they are. And so his revealing, which is unveiled in him, okay, his unveiling, what is unveiled in him, is for their purpose, not his own purpose. It came out jumbled. When Jesus comes to these seven churches... When he is unveiled and you see that which God gave him, the identity which his very source of himself is the Father living within him, still in heaven, still in heaven, or eternity rather. When that is unveiled, it's not for his own purpose, it's for their purpose. It's for their benefit. And as you begin to go through the book of Revelation, you find over and over the entire existence of Jesus is all about us still. In fact, I found it interesting in heaven. Guess what Jesus is doing right now? Sitting at the right hand of the Father doing what? Still wrapped up in us. Because that's the nature of the Father. Which tells me, which tells me, see, if I am Jesus to my world, I know what that's going to look like. I know what that's going to look like. How can I meet your need? That's right. Which is not just an earthly thing, which tells us, see, if you're not into that here, you're going to, you really, seriously, and this is not just joke language, you're going to hate it there. You're going to get there and say, wow. See, the reason they didn't go to the party is it wasn't a party to them. That's right. They wanted to go golfing. They wanted to go to the other party where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. Arguing and bittering, grabbing for yourself. That's the real party. It's just an expansion. That eternal is an expansion of what we're getting in on here. Okay? To show his servants. Now, what is he going to show them? He gives content to what he's going to show them, or at least direction to what he's going to show them. It's a demonstrative purpose, and it's a cross-style purpose. It's the style of the life that he lived purpose. Okay? What's being revealed in the book of Revelation. It has not changed from here to there. Isn't <laughs> reassuring? It's not changed from here to there. It doesn't go to die to yourself self-style. Okay? It doesn't go die to yourself, never live for yourself. Here, live for yourself in an eternal setting. In a whole, you know, that's, it's the same here as it is there. But he gives content to this. He says to show his servants. Okay? To show his servants. And then he adds this. What must soon take place? The take place is what must happen. That's kind of easy. It's self-explanatory. What must soon take place or what must happen? The word must gives the idea of the necessity of it. It's absolutely necessary. Okay? It's absolutely necessary. It's not just, he's not going to show his servants uh, what's going to take place. He shows his servants what must take place. This is absolutely necessary. It is a must. And you can go through the New Testament and trace that word, and we have, and so you've heard that. But it's an absolute necessity. What he is revealing, the, un the unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show us, is absolutely a must. It is absolutely certain. There is no question on this. What he reveals for you in your life, as God unveils himself to you, and the truth that he reveals to you, is not conditional. See, when God comes and reveals truth in a service like this, and man, this is, see... Um, there's something to be said. I've found myself at times <laughs> wanting to apologize or wanting to give... We did this one year, as a matter of fact. Give this disclaimer. If you don't want truth for your life, leave. Okay? If you don't want to be confronted, if you don't, because you're responsible for that truth, somehow you can't get away from that truth. The word of truth that comes to you hangs around you. It just, it'll wake you up in the night. It'll bug you. It'll, it'll be after you for the rest of your life. 
Because it, it, you, have no, you have no decision. You have to respond to the truth that's given. It's an absolute certainty. But I found it interesting, I found it really interesting, is we would all agree with that. That the truth of Jesus and how He confronts us and reveals Himself to us and we see the Father's plan inside of Him that's to be the plan in us is an absolute certainty. That's pretty understandable. But He adds the word soon to this. Take place, must, and then He adds the word soon. And the word soon doesn't mean I'm going to reveal truth to you and that you absolutely must, you absolutely must respond to that soon. Okay? Uh, gives you the idea that, yeah, there's some time aspect to this. That God has got a plan and it's inside of Jesus and it's coming to me and I need, well, I need to get with that. I need to, I need to respond. It's going to soon happen to me. That's not the idea. The word soon there is actually the word quickly. It's actually, hear this. It's actually the word quickly. Which means it gives you the idea of an immediate response. That when Jesus unveils truth to us, when He unveils Himself, we see that which God gave Him, which is given to us, the response is never to be a delayed response. There's absolute... You have to do this now. There's urgency to this, is how one commentator put it. There's urgency to this revelation. So when God reveals truth to you in a service, or God reveals truth to you in your life... See, you need to respond to that because there's purpose in that. There's eternal consequences to that. That God is wanting to do something in your life that is absolutely crucial and essential, not just here, but there. I found it interesting that in the seven churches, Jesus comes and He reveals Himself. At the end of each of those churches, He always says to him who has an ear, let him hear. And He talks about eternal consequence. That changes things in my life. See, I, I have, even, man... I have thought, well, that didn't mean much. I mean, it's not like it's going to change my destiny. I'm not perfect. (laughs) Sometimes I'll respond to Jesus. Sometimes I'll say, yeah, flip off. I mean, I still love you. I'm going to go to... It's not going to matter about there. I mean, come on. See, I wonder what would happen if, say, um, Joseph thought that way. The urgency... He's lying in bed, frying. There was no air conditioner. He's hot. Angel appears. So, get up, get up, get up, get up, get up. Take the child, go to Egypt. He's like, good night. Angel goes away. Mary wakes up. What was that? It's that angel again. <laughs> He's been coming around. <laughs> it's an angel of the Lord. Well, what's wrong? What do you want? We've got to go to Egypt. Oh, just lay back down. Go tomorrow. It's a long day. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. Imagine if that would have been... What if the response would have been delayed? God would have intervened, sure. But boy, that would have changed Joseph. That would have changed Joseph forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Because he can never go back and get that. I'm not saying, hey, I'm not saying that we can't be forgiven, but see, there's something so crucial. There's something so crucial about the knowledge of him when he seeks to unveil himself. That is such, you understand the cost of that. The cost of that. When God reveals truth to your life, you've got to respond right now. I mean, it is absolutely critical. It's absolutely crucial that when he unveils himself and the Father's plan comes, 
and truth is revealed to us, see, yes, we must respond. Yes, it's absolutely crucial. But when he reveals this stuff to the churches here in, 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 in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, you understand they have to respond. And it's not just respond and try to do it as soon as you can. It's respond absolutely immediately. It must take place and it must take place quickly, John says. This has got to take place in your life. So when God reveals truth to me in my life, it, it causes for, an, for, a, for a quick, immediate response. And there's not just an earthly consequence for that. Somehow there is an eternal consequence to that. That what we're doing here affects what's going on here somehow. People get saved. What happens in heaven? They respond to that. There's rejoicing. I wonder what happens when I don't respond. I can counter what happens. I don't think I want to find out. Um, I don't know how that applies to your life. Where has he been speaking to you? Let's just kind of, let's just exhale, relax a little bit. Where has he been speaking to you in your life, teenager, and you haven't been responding? He's revealed truth in your life and you haven't been responding. I don't know how to figure this out. I haven't, man, I, I have no idea how this works out, but somehow my responding to him affects my son. And I can somehow pass things on to him. I'm going to teach him how to treat my wife. I'm going to teach him how to treat a wife. And when God, and and again, it's not I'm doing it for my son, but somehow God is, my life is not just separate from you. I'm intertwined with. And when he speaks to me, there's eternal consequences of that. And we've seen those consequences. We've seen those consequences ripple from generation to generation to generation to generation to generation. One of the things that I've been struggling with, see, what if I, what if I don't respond to Jesus, but I respond to Jeremiah and make CJ into a preacher? That could destroy him. It could destroy him. The decisions we make for our kids and what we push them into. See, there has to be an absolute kingship of Christ in my life, moment by moment, living for Him, living in Him, walking in the sphere of truth. And when He speaks to me and reveals truth to me, there's a a need, there's an absolute must that I respond immediately to that. It's absolutely crucial. Where have you not been responding? What death is spewing around you? Because you've pushed it away, you've not responded. Well, that's not a big deal. It's only this. It's only a TV show. It's only a... Lord Jesus, we love you. That's why I got saved in 1995. I realized for the first time that you weren't a mean, angry God that was wanting to manipulate me and control me and use me as a servant for your purposes. You were trying to save me. You were trying to save me from myself, Jesus. And there are some things going on in my life that are absolutely so destructive, that are so significant to my life and the lives of those around me that when you reveal truth, it is a must that I respond And I'm finding that it's beyond the actions. Joseph taking Jesus to Egypt was beyond just the action of hauling a baby to Egypt. It was an embrace. 
there was a spiritual significance to that. There was a relationship to that. There was a fatherhood that had an earthly fatherhood that took place there. There was something significant in that, not only for Joseph, but for Jesus. Speak loud enough so I can hear you. And when you when you speak, Jesus, let me respond. I don't want to resist that. The consequences are too great. I want to be the unmarred demonstration. I want to be the unmarred hand. I want to be the un, untouched hand. The unhindered hand of you in my world. I don't want to resist that for selfish desires. I don't want to bend it. I don't want to curb it. I don't want to use it. When you speak, when you want to flow, don't let me hinder that flow. I want to worship you, Jesus. Open our eyes to the truth of your word in this morning. And when you speak, we'll respond. When, we, when you speak, we'll respond.